We're in Mark chapter 8. We will be out of it today by the skin of our teeth. It's for the sake of the background that we've already covered, which sets up the rest of the pericope. Beginning in verse 27 of Mark, let's get to the right gospel here. Mark chapter 8. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. Jesus continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, Thou art the Christ. And Jesus warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples... Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. And Jesus summoned the multitude and with his disciples. And he said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels shall save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What shall a man give in exchange for a soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father and with his holy angels. It is remarkable that Jesus publicly castigates Peter for basically taking up the cause of Satan himself. And Jesus tells the twelve, and in so doing, of course, he's telling us, that anyone who determines to follow Jesus must not only accept his march to Calvary, but must in like fashion be ready and willing to accept that each one of his followers, which includes you and me, each have our own cross to bear and a life of suffering in our own right. I honestly wonder how many followers of Christ ever stop to think about Jesus' words here in terms of application to the way in which we make our evangelistic appeals. That is, the appeal to somebody to come to Jesus. And by this I mean not just why come to Jesus, but what's the real cost of doing so? Being candid... The woman answers and says to Jesus, I I have no husband. And Jesus says to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband. For in fact, you have had five husbands. And the one that you have now is not even your husband. So this you have truly said. Now, I don't know how that grabs you, but what a positively strange way to make an offer of salvation. Well, what does Jesus do? 
Jesus confronts a life problem which reveals something about the woman's real need. Because this was never about H2O. Second vignette, one we call the rich young ruler. Someone came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Boy, you talk about having it just handed out there to you. How many times in your lifetime have you ever had anyone just come flat out and say, so what do I got to do to get to heaven? I think maybe maybe I've had it happen twice. I don't know. So he comes there and he says, what must I do to obtain eternal life? And Jesus says to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. So the rich young ruler says to him, well, which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man says to Jesus, Oh, all these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? Interesting that he perceives that there's still something more. Jesus says to him, If you wish to be teleos, in the Koine Greek. Translators usually translate it either if you wish to be complete or if you wish to be perfect. Both of those words are very adequate for that word. The word completion means in an ultimate sense, means in a God-satisfying way of being in toto, complete. In other words, perfect. He says, well, if you wish to be perfect then go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. When the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, because he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now Jesus here is, yes, he's speaking to the person who asked him the question, but he's in the midst of a crowd of people. And so Jesus' answer is not just to the young man, but it is in fact to the entire crowd. And what does he do? He just alienates probably everybody in that crowd. Jesus is just so not a salesman. It reminds me when I was attempting to do sales when I was in elementary school and I was required to go out once a year in the wintertime in Euclid, Ohio, carrying a box, a cardboard box that had a cardboard handle on it, containing 12 boxes of cookies. And I had to go door to door as a fundraiser for the Y. And I absolutely hated it. And there was always somebody on the sidewalk waiting for me, either a parent or an adult from the Y or something like that. And I hated it so much that sometimes I would actually go up and I would pretend that I was knocking on the door and I wasn't really. Occasionally, I, you know, fake it a little too well, and you hit. I'm like, please, no, please, no, please, no. Don't answer the door. And they'd answer the door. Well, here, here, this box was about, I was three foot two at the time, so it was like halfway up my body, and I'm dragging along. Here's my sales pitch. It's kind of like Jesus. You don't want to buy any cookies, do you? And that was it. I sold out. I don't know. They 
felt sorry for me or something. Okay, that had nothing to do with any of that. Uh, vignette number three, the woman caught in adultery. Boy, we know that story. It's interesting, if the woman was caught, as she was, in adultery, where's the guy? That's for another day, another time, another message. So anyway, the woman is caught in adultery, and according to the law of the land, the law of the Jews and the Pharisees, etc., etc., and there are all the self-righteous ones, they're all gathered around in their pomp and in their arrogance, and they've caught her, and they're dead to rights, and they've got their stone, and they're ready to administer justice. And Jesus knows they are in the right in doing what they're doing. (laughs) But Jesus says, let the one among you who is without sin throw the first stone. And what happens? There's this rock drop. Precursor to the mic drop. And so they abandon, they go away, and Jesus is left now with just the woman. And Jesus says to her, is there no one who condemns you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Now go. And if Jesus had just stopped there, Jesus would have been right in step with the culture of our day. But oh no, he has to ruin it by adding one more statement. Jesus says to her, I do not condemn you either. Now go. And from now on, sin no more. In each of these three scenarios, what Jesus did was he fashioned a different approach for each individual, depending on the condition of each one's heart. He never used the cookie-cutter approach that we seem to be so fond of today. But the one thing that Jesus addressed, in not just only these, but in every situation, was the cost of saving grace. No easy believism here, or what the young Lutheran pastor who was executed for his resistance to Nazi Germany, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, coins the phrase, cheap grace. He writes, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it's grace because it calls us to follow Christ. It's costly because it cost him his life. And it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And it's grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought with a price. If we think about Jesus' words, the words that I opened this morning with, from earlier in Mark chapter 8. We might easily listen to his words and, if not accuse Jesus, at least think that Jesus is a bit of a legalist, of advocating a merit-based righteousness. If anyone would come after me, deny himself. 
take up his cross and follow me. So many times, though, in so many ways, Jesus warns his followers that suffering, suffering was to be an expected outcome of being a Christ follower. It was not an aberration. That is, suffering of the Christ followers is part and parcel of the calling of every follower of Jesus. We read in the Gospel of John, Jesus speaking, chapter 15, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but rather I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, that a slave is not greater than his master? If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. And then the Apostle Peter, sometime later on down the timeline, not very far, but a little down the ways, he writes in his own book called First Peter chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, or a thief, or evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify in his name. Now, don't get confused here. When Jesus spoke those words to the disciples, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. He was not intimating that a God-pleasing goodness was to be found in self-deprivation. In other words, God does not delight in his people's suffering and does not increase one's value to God if they pursue suffering needlessly, believing that that kind of suffering somehow gains them merit points with God. In fact, the whole, what was called the ascetic movement at the uh, earliest ages of Christianity, the ascetic movement uh, were those individuals that believed that holiness was derived by giving up all earthly and material possessions and going out and literally living in caves and just making their way around eating bugs or whatever was found with literally just the clothes on their back, that that was somehow going to merit God's attention and his favor would score them eternal life, how wrong they were. In fact, what distinguishes Christianity from all other religions is the very fact that no one can earn their holiness merit badge. Denying one's self to impress God is not impressive. But what Jesus is referring to is the kind of self-denial exemplified by Jesus, portrayed for us in Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, chapter 2, verses 5 and forward. Have this attitude in yourselves, writing to the believers. 
Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the very form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation. Not work for. It's an eternity of difference. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the definition of what it means to deny one's self and taking up one's cross. Oh, how this has been misconstrued. When Jesus said, deny yourself, he wasn't necessarily talking about driving a 12-year-old car held together by bailing wire and duct tape. If you can legitimately afford something nicer, he didn't mean that you shouldn't take that trip to Disney that you have been diligently and over a long period of time saving for if all your other financial obligations and responsibilities are covered. It's not what it means to deny oneself. No, denying oneself, as Jesus ordered it, is far more involved than merely doing without. And it's far more difficult. And let's not forget that he also said, to find your life, you need to lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel will find it. So Jesus was talking about a willingness to give up absolutely anything the Spirit might lay on your hearts to give up. Or if not to give up, maybe just to rearrange the priority of your life. Or maybe just to put off for a season, or maybe for several seasons. And if that is done in honoring the Lord of your life, it doesn't have to be painful or sad And in fact, it will be life-fulfilling. I talked about Barbara this morning. The greatest, truly, the greatest dream, she didn't come out of a Christian family, the greatest dream that her father had for his firstborn, who was Barb, of six, expectations are always the highest, was that she would go to college and she would graduate and not and go to a good college. And so he sent her to the University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, fighting Illini, Big Ten University, rah-rah, very respected academically and all that. And Barb was there, and of course Barb was a great student, as opposed to her husband-to-be, who couldn't stand school. But she did very well. But after two years at the university... That husband-to-be came in and messed up everything. I proposed to her. She couldn't resist the uniform. 
Actually, we met in high school, so there was no uniform when I first met her. And uh, so I was in the Army. We got married, and I immediately swept her away out of suburban Chicago and her, her path at University of Illinois to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, Clarksville, Tennessee, which just coincidentally happens to be the home of Austin P. State University. Not the University of Illinois, but still a university. And Barb thought, well, great, you know, it might, it'll just work out. She could continue her education down there and wind up with a degree after all. And so I'm playing soldier. Barb's going to school at Austin P. And she is one quarter away from graduation. <laughs> one quarter away from her father getting his dream fulfilled. And it was a real desire of Barb's, obviously, to do that. But at the same time, we were growing in the love and knowledge of Christ. We were newborn baby Christians, but we did have some common sense still, which was much more in abundance back in those days than it is even today. And there was another little intrusion called our firstborn. And so she finished the quarter that she was in. It was only a few weeks left from giving birth. She was able to finish. Now she's one quarter shy. And neither one of us were at all satisfied with the arrangements of babysitting for our precious little boy. And so with one quarter to go, based on what we were learning of the Lord and what his desires were for family and husbands and wives and mothers and fathers, she said, I'm done with school. I would love to go back someday, I assume, I may be able to do that. Of course, her parents were heartbroken, which only added to my stock, which was already so far in the dumper that it wouldn't even be called a penny stock. But that's another story that you can read in The Proper Pursuit of Prosperity. So now, of course, you know, life goes on. I get out of the Army. We move to Atlanta. Now I'm in school full-time working on multiple degrees and all of that. More babies come on the scene, so, you know, that, that dream of college just gets further and further out there. And finally, we're in Chicago now, many years later, 17 years have gone by from that original putting that dream on hold, according to what she was convinced by the Spirit that was right and good to do, and as was I. 17 years later, my grandmother did such a generous, courteous thing, she died, and she left us. Come on. Wow. The difference between first and second service. Yeah. Just so you guys are tender and sensitive. They're like, blah! God, that is so sick, Pastor. Maybe they thought I was kidding. But no, I'm not. So anyway, so we got a, uh, enough of a windfall to send Barb back to school. And you think, well, it's only a quarter. Well, no. If you're going to go back to another university and get your degree this school required at least another year at that particular institution. So she commuted into inner, inner Chicago to you know, Roosevelt University. Uh, it was thousands and thousands of dollars for that first year. But grandma, dear grandma, covered the whole thing. And 17 years later, she received her degree. And wasn't her father thrilled? And my stock maybe have gone up a half a point at that time. That's what it means. Just one small example, and I had a few others, but we just, I know we don't have time based on how things went in the first service. In such times like that, 
What I would like to ask, and again, my other examples were real life and very pointed, but in those kinds of situations, on the part of God's people, is there ever, ever any real, I mean real, not lip service, well, we're praying about it, but I mean ever any real consideration of what God really wants you to do in those kinds of life settings. And again, that's just one type. I've changed my career three different times. And and to be legitimate, the Lord changed my career three different times. And I'm afraid that if anything at all, way too often on the part of the believer, those sorts of things is merely, uh, if at all, it's just this perfunctory kind of hoop to jump through so that we can can convince ourselves that, of course, this is good. Now come and bless me, Lord. Remember that the follower of Jesus has been bought with a price. And if you would find your life, you must lose it. All right, well, the way that the book of Mark now is laid out here, it looks like Jesus ends his comments with verse 38 of chapter 8, with a warning about the person who is ashamed of Jesus will find that Jesus will be ashamed of him when Jesus returns. The publishers here, and they do this quite a bit, I don't know why, but in this situation it's mind-boggling or just numbing. But the publishers made a decision here to insert the chapter break with the next verse, which doesn't even make any sense, and it serves only to confuse the narrative now in chapter 9. Because they have chapter 9, verse 1, by virtue of the chapter break, seeming to beginning a new vignette, a new thought. But chapter 9, verse 1, is a continuation of what we've been looking at in chapter 8. And if you doubt that... If you look at Matthew and Luke's account of this same exact situation, they have it laid out as a continuation of the same conversation. So let that just remind us that chapter breaks are not inspired, and sometimes they can confuse things rather than make them easier. All right, so keeping the conversation going from chapter 8, tagging on to verse 38 into chapter 9, Jesus has just given them some really hard words, making their heads and probably their hearts spin as well. So in closing this conversation, Jesus is going to utter to them what are supposed to be words of hope. Verse 1, chapter 9. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now what happens right after Jesus makes that statement. Well, what happens is the enigmatic occurrence called the transfiguration in verses 2 through 8. So we read it. Six days later. Six days later than what? Don't lose track of the context of chapter 8. Six days after Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And we know that that was all received really well, right? Yeah, No, not at all. 
As I said, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. And Jesus rebukes Peter for unwittingly making himself an ally of the devil himself. And this is what provokes Jesus' eye-opening charge. Get behind me, Satan. So on balance, the disciples have to be reeling at this latest revelation out of Jesus' mouth. It's God's timing, though. And God determines, you know what, I think you know, I think the boys are probably uh, in need of some reassurance. I need to get their feet back on solid ground, lest they grow completely disillusioned with this whole Messiah-Savior thing. So six days later, we read in chapter 9, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. Now, Peter, James, and John were not there yet in the gospel. It hasn't happened yet, chronologically speaking. Peter, James, and John are the ones that are focused on and singled out with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Peter, James, and John were the only three that were allowed to be in the room present when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter earlier in this book. So we continue. Jesus brought these three up on a high mountain by themselves. And Jesus was transfigured or, or metamorphosed. The word is actually metamorpho. From what you think about a butterfly changing from the nasty little worm into this beautiful butterfly. Jesus was metamorphosed before them. And his garments, now remember, you have human beings trying to describe what is an absolutely indescribable supernatural uh, vision. Not a dream, but a vision where they are, they are actually experiencing this and seeing this, but there's really no words, so they try the best they can. Mark tries the best he can. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can bleach them, literally from the Greek. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses. And Elijah and Moses were talking with Jesus. And Peter, of course it has to be Peter. You have this, this, this absolutely mind-boggling supernatural situation, and their jaws are on the ground, and Peter's got to open his mouth. Rabbi, uh, 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 it's good for us to be here. Um, uh, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, uh, and one for Elijah. He said, boy, you are really injecting thought into that. Read the next verse. For Peter did not know what to answer. He was just, I'm Peter, i got to talk, i got to say something, even if it's stupid. Because they were terrified. Well, I guess so. Then a cloud formed overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And all at once, just like that, they looked around and they saw no one with them anymore. No more Moses, no more Elijah, only Jesus. What was the last thing they heard? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. But what about Moses and Elijah? This is my beloved son. He will be the last man standing. Listen to him. 
If you've been around a while, maybe you've read commentaries on the whole, what, well, why was Moses and Elijah there? What might they have been talking about? What does it mean that Moses and Elijah was there and everybody's got their thoughts and ideas? But I'm telling you, the text doesn't tell us. So I'm just good with knowing Moses and Elijah were there. I have no idea what they were saying. You didn't tell us, Lord, what they were saying, so you don't mean for us to know what they were saying. I don't even know why it was Moses, why it was Elijah. I suppose there's good reason. Maybe someday you'll reveal it. But all I know is they're gone, and you said, Hey, knuckleheads, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Don't worry about Moses. Don't worry about Elijah. Listen to my son, Jesus. Peter. (laughs) I love Peter. I really do. I so relate to him. All right, let's make sense of this whole narrative in light of the context. This is the point in the narrative, I believe. I could be wrong. Jesus is talking at an ultimate level of his mission and purpose and coming. He's been doing that since we've been in the Gospel of Mark. Every step of the way, remember that Jesus minimized the miraculous healings, and ordered people to keep it to themselves. Shh, don't spread it around. And so now as Jesus gives hints that some kind of climax, some kind of climax about the kingdom is coming, they understandably conclude that he must be meaning that he's going to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth at any moment. After all, this again was the pinnacle of their hope. An earthly kingdom that would be everything they envision and have ever hoped for through the millennia leading up to this point. But such a kingdom is that. As grand as it would be for their few short years on life would only ever be temporary. And they needed a bigger vision. They needed a far grander vision that went beyond the momentary existence of their few years. And I believe the transfiguration was for that purpose. So if it was for that purpose, why not invite all the disciples? Didn't they need encouraging too? Why not invite the masses and the crowds? I don't know. (laughs) But I do know this. I know that belief requires faith with or without with or without experiential reality to back it up. Let me make that simpler. Faith, no matter how compelling the circumstances, is still nevertheless always required. And apparently, this came to me a couple of weeks ago. I wasn't at the conference due to illness. But apparently, a person at the Why Jesus Conference, in the question and answer time, prefaced his comment by, or his question by saying, I'm not, I'm not a believer. Uh, but his question was, why does God require faith? And I guess that if I understood it right, that this was tied in to some other statements he made about about the classic, and I've heard this so many times truly over the years, well, you know, if God would just show himself to me, then fine. I'm ready to believe. 
If you would just reveal himself to me, I'm ready to go. This question was a good one. Why faith? Well, first of all, God did exactly what the man was requesting for centuries in the Old Testament. Let me remind you of a few things. We remember how well God's supernatural, up close and personal, miraculous dealings with his people worked out in building their faith. Think about their imprisonment in Egypt as slaves to Pharaoh and what God did to get them released through the ten plagues, the ten miracles, and in the Passover with that miracle, and in parting the Red Sea for them to pass through on dry land to the other side, and all the miracles that followed, and every single step of the way. They just got through the Red Sea. This is still old material. And they were now without water. And ah, you know, we should have come out of here. Now we're going to die of thirst. And God gives them water. Was their faith increased? And they were without food. Ah, we came out here to die. It didn't do anything for their faith. God's up close and personal. You think about the pillar of faith and the, and the, the fire by night and all. I mean, just too many things to recount here. And then in the fullness of time, God even went so far as to take on human form. And God, what this man was asking for, walked among the people, the crowds, and they experienced him. They saw him. They talked with him. They ate with him. They laughed with him. They watched him do the impossible. And yet, they crucified him. Hmm. And after he was crucified, he didn't just mysteriously go back up into heaven, beam me up, Scotty. No intelligent life down here. I would understand that. No, he didn't go back to heaven for a while. And he didn't appear as your liberal scholarly theologians say, well, you know, he only appeared to those who believed in him, and they were under this mass hypnotic trance, and all the things they saw was a mass hypnosis. It takes more faith to believe the explanations than what the Scriptures tell us happened. Jesus appeared to hundreds and hundreds of people after the crucifixion, after he was dead, after he came to life. He showed Thomas the scars in his hands. Regular people, doubters, unbelievers, hundreds of them. And how did it all work when God showed himself personally and revealed himself as this man was asking? Well, God would just show himself to me. We know how it worked out. There was no massive revival. There was no spiritual renewal. There was not a divine blanket of world peace dropped on Rome. So the person who insists that if God would show himself to them, then they would believe, it sounds reasonable, but there are thousands and thousands of years of practical reality proven that that has never been the case. The writer of Hebrews says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must first believe that he exists and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. 
but more compellingly, or at least as compellingly, to the one who says, well, God would just reveal himself to me. God has revealed himself to everyone. Or God's a liar. The book of Romans, Paul's letter to the church at Rome, chapter 1, beginning about verse 20 and forward. Don't have time to read that this morning. But it says categorically, I have revealed myself to everyone so that they are without excuse. The reality is faith is a gift. And faith is given on God's initiative and God's unilateral sovereignty. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, For it is by grace that you are saved through faith. And that faith is not of your own. It is a gift, not of works, lest any man should boast. There they are in the Mount of Transfiguration. A taste, a full view of the kingdom of heaven on earth. Did some see the kingdom of heaven before they died? Oh, yeah, they did. And I only mention that because, again, liberal theologians have so bastardized the scriptures as to misinterpret that, again, as to show just another many of contradictions in why the Bible cannot be trusted. At the end of the day, it's not about Jesus coming in and parting the waters in your bathtub <laughs> or your soup. Thinking about God Almighty. Sorry. Or uh, Bruce Almighty. Yeah. Anyway. It comes down to it. That in the absence of or with the evidence of faith is nevertheless required. And that is a gift of God. Let me have you stand. You're late. Thank you for your indulgence. I even edited this heavily between services. Father in heaven, your ways are not our ways. But I do know and I do believe your word. And so I pray this morning you would encourage those who believe I pray you would challenge those, Lord, who think they believe and are self-deceived. And I pray for those who do not believe. And that you would be speaking to their heart and their soul right now, and you would bestow upon them that precious gift of saving faith. For your glory's sake, for their eternity's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.